Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church Podcast. This is our Lord's Day Sermon. We pray that as we declare the Word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's Word, and may the Lord be with you. All human relationships are conditional. Every single one of them. There's not a single human relationship that you can point to that is not built upon some agreed upon or assumed upon conditions. For instance, your barber or stylist or whatever that is. Say they cut your hair poorly, you walk out, you're never going back there again. The condition is they're gonna do their job right or you're not gonna be in that relationship. You think about managers or sports coaches, if they don't help the team actually win and go to the playoffs and sell more stuff and you know, raise, the, raise the bottom line, then they're gonna be canned. There's playoff teams that are already hiring new coaches, which is incredible to me. What a standard. We made the playoffs, lose your job. Marriage is not unconditional either, if you think about it. You may say that your love for your spouse is unconditional, but there are conditions. If your wife, just as an example, were to stop telling the truth about everything, who she's with, where she's going, what she's doing, so that trust was completely eroded in your marriage, your marriage would fall apart. If your husband's loyalty eventually erodes away and he finds himself gawking at every passerby, or lingering on websites, or watching things that he shouldn't be watching, or engaging behavior that he shouldn't be engaged in. That's a condition that is essential to the integrity of marriage. And if it's not there, the marriage is not going to last, at least not healthily. There's all kinds of conditions that we, that we have, maybe unspoken conditions that we believe before we enter into relationships, conditions of unity or honesty Fidelity and faithfulness, intimacy, affection, multiplication. How do we communicate with one another? I've seen relationships fall apart by something as simple as we don't know how to talk to one another. There's all sorts of conditions that are integral to relationships. And maybe you're saying, okay, I can understand that, but not with my children. Every other relationship is conditional, I agree, but not my baby conditional as well it's conditional upon a lot of things now I will admit that a, pa a parent's relationship with their children is one of the closest relationships to an unconditional love but it's still based upon conditions imagine if a child is stealing from you vandalizing your home bringing drugs I'm, I'm, I'm being really over the top here but I'm just I'm trying to set the boundaries here they're committing crimes in your house. They're abusing your other children. They're taking a swing at their mother. If those things are happening. Eventually the relationship's gonna break down. Every human relationship that we have has limits. The limits might be really large. There might be a lot of patience and long suffering that comes with intimate relationships, but every human relationship has conditions. And if those conditions are not met, then the relationship will fall apart and it will end. That's how relationships crumble. 
First, they experience strain. When conditions aren't being met for a little while, you can bear with it, depending on how intimate the relationship is. If it's your barber, done. One time, over. <laughs> not trying to look ugly. Well, I'm already working against genetics. I mean, my barber needs to do his job. But intimate relationships, you can be patient, but over time that creates strain if those conditions don't come into alignment. That strain eventually becomes division. Division becomes distance. Distance becomes severance, where the relationship is broken. Now again, this happens in all kinds of human relationships. Maybe you're saying, but it doesn't happen with God. My relationship with God is unconditional, but in fact, our relationship with God is built upon conditions as well. We have relational assumptions with God from our standpoint that God's gonna love me and I'm gonna be his special snowflake. We all feel like that because you know how I know that? Because when things don't go our way, we're whining about it and crying about it and saying, God, where are you? He never said you're gonna have it easy, but as soon as the temperature goes up, we start crying with the best of them, don't we? When assumptions don't pan out, when our relationship with God feels distant, we feel like there's tension. We feel like there's distant. And if that condition persists, I've even heard Christians say, I think God has abandoned me. I don't think God's with me. I don't feel God is near me. Our conditions that we bring to the relationship is I'm going to feel close to God or I'm going to do this and that. And every single person, if they go through those seasons of deserts and wildernesses long enough, those conditions will say, oh, I feel this distance. Now, our heart's deceitful above all things. So when we feel distance with God, we're the problem. Our heart is wrong, but it's a condition that we have in the way that we approach God. Now you'll say, but the way God approaches us is different. He and his love is unconditional, right? Human relationships have vulnerabilities. God doesn't have that. Human relationships are held together through repentance. God doesn't need to repent of anything. He's never done a single thing wrong. He's always loved us unconditionally. And yet, there is a condition. If you're not in Christ, you don't belong to him. Now, after that, after you are elect, after you've been redeemed, after you've been brought into relationship with Jesus, he loves you consistently forever. But that's the condition. You must be born again. You must be in Christ you must have his blood painted upon your heart. If that condition is not met, you're not his. So even the love of God has conditions. Have you ever thought about that? We hear all the time, God loves me unconditionally. No, he did not love you just the way you are. He loved you enough to die for you. That's different. I did a little little experiment on this to see if the word unconditional is even in the Bible. I used English version, so I didn't use Greek. It's not in the NASV at all, not once. It's not in the ESV, not once. It's not in the KJV, not once. The word unconditional does not show up in the, what I think are the three great translations in English. The only translation that shows up in is the message, which is not a Bible. Now listen, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too harsh. There is a purpose for the message, that translation. It makes a really good doorstop. 
it fixes wobbly tables. If you're into pressing flowers when they've died, it's a lovely hobby, by the way. Beautiful, you can do that. It can start a campfire, it's really good for kindling. You can roast lamb chops over an open flame so that the aroma that, that wafts up to the Lord is a pleasant aroma to him. You can have paper airplane competitions, but don't, don't use it as a Bible because it's not a Bible. It is, it is a paraphrase at best. I say that because it's ubiquitous, it's all over the place. Read an English Bible. The message is not about, anyway, I'm off track. The word unconditional does not show up in the English translations because God's relationship with us is not purely unconditional. It's based upon the condition of Christ. Christ died for you, he was buried for you, he rose again for you, his blood was painted on you. If that condition is not met, nothing you can do can, can storm the gates of heaven. Nothing you can do can earn your salvation. If that condition's not met, you're still lost. So his love is conditional, conditioned upon Jesus Christ. Now today, we're gonna lean into that condition. We're gonna look at one condition that Christ has done that opens up everything for us. And from that one condition, we're gonna see four beautiful things that happen to us, four things that, that start to grow in us, but we have to root it in the fact that it's based on a condition. So if you will, turn with me to the next verses in our John 14 study. We're in John 14, 18 through 24. You were starting to think we were gonna go one verse at a time. We're gonna pick it up a little bit today. John 14, 18 through 24. Let us read this passage together. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words which you've heard are not mine, but the father's who sent me. Let's pray. Lord, today help us to see the great condition upon which everything rests, upon which our faith our love, our living, our sight, our will, everything is rooted. Lord, help us today to, to see rightly that all of the wonderful things that have happened to us in our faith are because of one condition. That was by the power of Christ and Christ alone. Lord, help us 
Or if there's someone here today who is not under the canopy of that condition, Holy Spirit, would you awaken them today? Would you reveal to them their sinfulness? Would you cause them to turn and look to the, the risen Christ? And Lord, would you graft them into your family of grace? Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's one condition by which all of us stand, all of us live, and it is Christ. It's the thing that we see right away in this text, right as soon as we open it up in verse 18. Jesus says, you will see me because I live. Because Jesus lives, because he rose from the dead, you and I will have the things that this passage is talking about. It's the only reason any of us will have anything in this life is because he lives. Do you ever remember that old hymn? I think the Gaithers wrote it. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives... I don't remember the rest of it, but I remember that part. That's the important part because he lives. That's the condition by which we are known to God because he rose from the grave. Without that, we have nothing. I remember sitting in my uh, seminary class on Puritanism in America, I believe is what it was. And we were reading dusty old books and my professor he read a line, or I think from, uh, from Thomas Boston or something, uh, or uh, Cotton Mather, I, I don't remember. The important part was he put the book down and a tear formed in his eye. He was in his 80s when he said this. I think he's like late 80s now. He said, the gospel is more beautiful today than it was when I first believed. And that captivated my heart. I wanna be like that that the simple gospel, we can learn a lot of things. The simple gospel is the bedrock of everything. Because he lives, everything is now available to the believer. Because he lives, that's the condition. And what I find so fascinating is that he took us in our pitiful condition and because of that condition gave us a new condition called new creation. Everything is based on that. So from now, that's the bedrock, that's the gospel. Now the four things we're gonna talk about moving from that are all based on that. So as we, as we go through these four things, do not be confused. They're all there because he lives. None of it is because you're great. None of it is because you're smart. None of it is because you're more spiritual than someone else. It is because he lives, the first one, you will see. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Why? Because I live. Jesus in this passage, in this phrase, is admitting something to us. He's admitting we don't have sight in and of ourselves. The only reason we have sight is because he lives. We don't have sight in and of ourselves. We're born into iniquity and sin. We're born into, into all kinds of things that blind our eyes, that leave us in impenetrable darkness so that of our own strength, of our own volition, of our own will, we cannot see. We're like a blind man walking over Tombs that have been covered over with shallow dirt, ready to fall through in a moment. We were blind, dead spiritually. I was looking up, I was asking ChatGPT something this week. I was asking it about black holes. 
And I said, explain black holes to me like I'm a child. That's most of my questions to ChatGBT. <laughs> Apparently, black holes have such incredibly dense and thick and powerful gravity. It's so strong that light can't even get in. That's the same way that you and I were in our sin. Our sin nature was so strong, so palpable, that the light of the gospel would not come in without Christ forcing it in. We couldn't see it. We were blind to it. We could wave our proverbial hand in front of our face and we couldn't see it at all. It was not there until Christ gave us new eyes and gave us a new condition. The gospel is the fact that the darkness you and I were living in, Christ took upon himself. He marched up the hill of Calvary. Skies turned dark, darkness came over him. He was crucified there in that moment, thrown into a tomb, sealed with the tombstone there so that no light could get in, descended down into the depths of Sheol, in the land of shadows, I think Job calls it. Three days, Jesus lived in the darkness that you and I deserved. And on the third day, the light burst forth from the tomb. That's the hope. Because in and of yourself, you deserve that, the darkness. You deserve no light, no sight, nothing. And yet in Jesus Christ, the light of the world, you've been awakened. That is the very gospel. His resurrection gives us a new condition. He gives us both sight and light. And he does more than that even for those who are in him. He doesn't just give us sight to see the light. He makes us into little lights and puts us up on lampstands so that a dark world will be able to see the goodness and grace of God. He says, because I live, you will see me. Because I live, the world will see the glory of God. I'd love to be able to see the world as Christ sees it. Every Christian lit up with the Holy Spirit. I'd love to, to go back like, you know, like Jeff Bezos in his little rocket ship and be able to see like all the little lights all over the world for Christians and how that's illuminating the planet because he lives. You will see and you will become lights in a dark and crooked and perverse generation. Amen? It's so good because he lives. The next thing is because he lives, you're going to live too. He says, but you will see me because I live and because I live, you will live also. His life is what brings us into life. His resurrection is what resurrects us. His new creation is what makes us new creations. He brings us into new life. Now there's so much to unpack in that passage. But I would expect that if he gives us new life, then we'll actually start living. Before Christ, we were dead. We were zombies, we were walking around, we were doing our things, spiritual zombies. But because he's given us life, there should be some evidence of living about us. For the first time maybe in our life, there should be some evidence of the fact that, that God's life has become our life and our behavior now is becoming conformed to his behavior. His life is, is 
is bearing down upon us and making us truly live. Christians are the only people on earth who can actually truly live. Do we showcase that? Do we showcase that we have the life of Christ coursing through our veins? Or do we bellyache with the best of them? I do. There should be something different about us if Christ's life has been given to us. Let me give you an example. I don't want to go morbid here, but I'm going to go morbid here. Imagine I went to your funeral. Whoa, he went there. I would not expect, if I looked down at your body, especially if you were cremated, but I would not expect for you to move while you were lying in the casket. That would freak me out. I wouldn't expect any twitching. I wouldn't expect even the flutter of an eyelash. I would expect you to lie there dead. But if something happened and you came back to life when I finally got my composure, my expectation would change. Previously, I would have said, you're not going to move. I don't expect you to move. I wouldn't have even thought about that. But now that you're alive, I don't expect you to stay seated. I don't expect you to stay laying. Can you imagine a dead person being resurrected, laying there, saying, oh, I think I'm quite comfortable. No. The first thing that they would be doing is get me out of this thing. They'd be leaping out of it. Their legs don't even maybe work yet. They're awkward, falling around. They're trying to get outside to, to see the sunshine. You imagine that the sun, they, they're weeping tears of joy because the sun is like, they're not going to take it for granted ever again. They've got life in their lungs. They're breathing. They're screaming. They're like, I'm alive. Sometimes I wonder why my life doesn't look that stark. I was dead. I've been made alive. Why is it that I... And why is it that we sometimes then go and lay in the caskets of old, go take snoozes and sin? We don't have the joy of the life of Jesus Christ coursing in our veins that changes everything about us. It changes our behavior, it changes our affections, it changes our priorities, it changes the way we love and the way that we see and the way that we live and the way that we talk and the way that we do everything. Jesus says, because I live, you will live too. Let that be our prayer, that we would live, that we would truly live. That's the second thing. The second consequence of his condition is that you will live. You will see and you will live. The third is that you will know him. He says, in that day, the day that he rises from the dead, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. We will not only have living spiritual eyes, and we will not only have a living soul and a living testimony where we live, but we will also obtain the greatest knowledge that can ever be obtained. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the great phrases in book one is, the knowledge of God is the greatest knowledge of all. It's the greatest knowledge. There's nothing that you can know that's better than the knowledge of God. And that doesn't just mean facts about God. It doesn't just mean memorization. Those are good. It doesn't just mean theology. That's good. I love theology. I'm not, I'm not downing that. I'm saying it's, it's a holistic kind of knowledge where you know God, not just know facts about God. There's potential here for somebody. If there was a sheet of facts 
on my wife that you could memorize and you might know more about her than I do if you studied, but you don't know her. I know her. The knowledge of God is both academic, but it's also intimate. It's in your head, but it's also in your heart. It's experiential knowledge. And it, it really covers two types of things the knowledge of God does. Because Jesus lived, two kinds of knowledge will culminate together in the knowledge of God. The first is you will know that Christ is equal to God, that he is God in the flesh. That's what Jesus says in this passage. You will know that Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in him. You will know that Christ is co-eternal with the Father, just like the Athanasian Creed says. Now, this is the Catholic faith. If you're new to Reformed churches, that doesn't mean Roman Catholic. That means big C Catholic, the whole church. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence, for the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. A lot of words there, but Christ is God. That's simple. When you come to know the knowledge of God, if you don't know that Christ is God, you don't know God. If you don't know that Christ is in the Father, then you don't know the Father. So intimate is that relationship that there are three and yet one. His resurrection will awaken you to that knowledge. The second knowledge that you will come to, not only that lordship of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the second bit of knowledge that you will come to is that you're in him. Not only is Christ in the Father and the Father in Christ and the Holy Spirit in this three in one beautiful, unexplainable even, triune Godhead that we see in scripture, but you're in him. You're in Christ. One word is, oh my goodness, in. You are in him. Have you ever just pondered that one word? This one of the smallest words in the English language, maybe other than A or I. In him. You are in Jesus. You're not on the outside anymore looking in. You're not someone who has some facts and you're like, I know a little bit about Jesus. <laughs> You're in him. He says, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. I think that's the most incredible statement in the Bible. I don't want to gloss over that. I think being in Christ is the central reality of what it means to be a Christian. If you are in him, you are, you're his. You're no longer a dead man. You're no longer a spiritually blind woman. He takes you into him. He doesn't grab the pom-poms and come to where you're at. He doesn't scream, oh, you're doing so wonderful. I'm going to applaud you where you are. He grabs you and yanks you and brings you into him. He animates your dead carcass of a soul. He enlivens your hollow spirit. He brings you life and brings you into him so that there's no more boundaries, no more walls, no more distance, no more, no more division. If you're in Christ, in Christ, you cannot be separated from him ever. How often do we say, I just feel like God is distant. God is not distant from you. You're in Christ. There's not a nanometer of distance between you and Christ. There's not a, whatever smaller than a nanometer. 
There's not a quark between you and Jesus. A human example of this, there's, I feel like I've gotten wisdom over the years a little. I'm slow to learn. But I've learned that there's two kinds of women in this world. There's my wife and there's not my wife. <laughs> That's the two kinds of women that there are in the world. There's my wife and there's not my wife. Those who are not my wife, I may care about them in some way upon a spectrum. Like my mom, you know, is pretty high on the spectrum. You know, some stranger in Bangladesh. I generally, in beauty pageant language, care for the world. I, I pray for world hunger. I mean, in some ways, right? I care for people, but they're all at a distance. There's some division, there's some separation. No woman on earth knows me like Shannon. I don't want to know any other woman on earth like I know her. If you're not Shannon, you're not getting to know me like that. If you want to get to know me like that, repent of that. Because I'm going to keep you in arms. I'm going to Heisman you. It's different with my wife than it is with any other woman. Marriage has brought her and I together. It's brought her and I into this one flesh. I have now been brought into her. She's been brought into me. One flesh union in a way that cannot be replicated by any other person on earth. There's nothing better, nothing sweeter. There's no communion that's more, that's more intense and more intimate and more every emotion all over the place. Like she is mine and I am hers. That is a human illustration that is so small compared to what Christ has done for you and I in raising from the dead. He has brought us in to him in a way that is not true for unbelievers who are kept at a distance from Christ. He's brought us in in such deep, intimate fellowship that marriage is something you would yawn at if you knew the intimacy that Christ has with his bride, the church. And I think the most profound part of that is that we're not only in him, but he is in them. Therefore, he's brought you into them. Does that make sense? You are in Christ, but Christ is in the Trinity, perfectly in the Trinity. So when he brought you in, he brought you peace with God. He brought you intimacy with the spirit. He brought you not as an outsider who's like, I'm friends with Jesus, but I don't get to go. I don't get to go there. No, 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 no. He brought you in. He brought you in intimacy with the Trinity. Something that you and I can never possibly fathom how excellent that is. You and I, as we think about it, we're like, that sounds kind of neat multiply your affections by 10,000 millions and you're still not even close to how good that is and how wonderful that news is. And I think all of eternity, because you and I are not omniscient. I used to think when you get to heaven, you're gonna know everything. No, only God knows everything. Heaven will be every day learning something new about God and singing your guts out because of it for eternity. I can't imagine what it's gonna be like I'm going to be, you're going to see me in heaven. I'm going to be like, we're in him. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> 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 
And in some ways, we'll be like, not yet, not totally. <laughs> There's so many implications of this. Dear one, I want you to hear this very clearly. If you're in Christ, you cannot be separated from God. It would be more likely that Christ would be severed from the Trinity than for you to lose your salvation because you're in him. Wherever he goes, you go. If he can't be severed from the Father, you can't be severed from the Father. Do you get that? You're his. Because he lives, you're in him. First three things we see is that we will, because he lives, we will see the things of God. We will live out the things of God and we will know the living God. The fourth thing that we see is that we will love him. Verse 21, Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Don't miss the, the beauty and the nuance here. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Here, he's flipping it and saying, if you obey my commandments, then you will love me. Do you see that? If you love me, you will obey me. If you obey me, you will love me. This is on purpose. This is sort of a relational helix, as it were. It's a a sort of way that we can look at how do we live our Christian life. There's a paradigm here, actually. If you're struggling with obedience, the last thing in the world you can do is add more effort, add more performance, try to obey harder. I'm struggling with patience. Let me just try to be more patient. See how that works. Mm -hmm. Try one day to be patient and you will be exploding like Mount Vesuvius by the end of it. I hear a mama back there. <laughs> the way to obey Christ is not to focus on obedience, it's to focus on love. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. If you're struggling with a particular sin, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with something that I, I'm the person next to me, God, is so aggravating and infuriating to me right now, I can't even open my mouth. Like, let's just be real. We all have those moments. If you're struggling with some duty that Christ has told you to do, don't try harder. Love him. Spend a second and just stop. Break the cycle of whatever thing that's bothering you. Just stop. Close your eyes and dream about the beauty of Jesus Christ. Go to the Psalms and celebrate the majesty of Christ. Look at his resurrection and, and how glorious he is and his, and his perfected flesh that he rose for us. Look at his Mount of Transfiguration and see this glorious Christ. Look to him. Look at his character. Look at who he is. And just for a moment, just allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And I guarantee you, your obedience will follow that. You can try really hard to be religious or you can spend your effort and energy trying to love Jesus and I promise you your obedience will follow because if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's a promise. But what if you're struggling with love? What if your heart is dead? 
What if you feel like you're in a wilderness and your, your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and smacking you right in the face? Then what do you do? Repent and obey. There's something in your life. There's some sin there that needs repenting of. There's some duty that you've neglected. Open up your Bible and read it. Pray. What I found is when I'm trying to obey and I'm being unsuccessful, I need to love Jesus. But when my heart is dull and I can't love Jesus in that moment and I'm struggling in that, there's some matter of obedience that I need to deal with. There's a helix involved. If I'm struggling with love, I need to work on repentance, work on the means of grace. If I'm struggling with obedience, I need to love him. There's this, there's this ebb and flow, this interchange between love and obedience where they actually work together so that you can't love Jesus if you don't obey him and you can't obey Jesus if you don't love him. They're both true. And they both, I commend them to you as, as a part of your sanctification to employ them both. As Christians, we get nervous because we don't want to be legalist. We don't want to say, you know, you have to obey. I've, I've been in so many conversations where don't tell me I have to obey. Jesus did everything. That's not what the Bible says. That's, that's called antinomianism. It means you're against the law, you're against obedience. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't give us a kind of grace that does everything for you. It's a grace that enables you to now do for God what you never could have done on your own. Hold those two in tension with one another. Love him, obey him, obey him, and love him. And the reason that those two realities are possible for you is because he lives. Because he lives, you can love him. Because he lives, you can now obey him. Because he lives, you can see him. Because he lives, you can know him. Today, all I want you to think about is that Jesus did not love you without conditions. He changed your conditions so that you could love him. And in so doing, respond to him today by giving him your eyes so that all you want to look at is him. And whatever you're looking at is sanctified. Respond today by giving him your life so that all you want to do is for him, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of Christ. Respond today by giving him your mind because he gave it to you. Fill it full of the knowledge of God. And respond to him today by loving him and obeying him. The Christian faith is not complicated, but it's also not easy. Respond by repenting, remembering, and rejoicing in who Christ is. You will grow and you will have great joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the condition by which we were brought in was you. And we thank you for that reality so that we could never thank ourselves. Lord, everything about this is, is us heaping praise and gratitude and joy upon you. Lord, today I pray that our dull eyes would see. Lord, I pray that our, our lives would be enlivened by the sweetness of the resurrected Christ. Lord, I pray that our friends and our family and our coworkers and our 
children and our spouses. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room that there would be something noticeably different, peculiar, and sweet about the life that is lived in submission to Christ. Lord, I pray that as we do that, that it would not be a dour, religious, sort of uh, performative obedience. Lord, I pray that it would be a dutiful or it would be a joyful delight that our hearts would be inflamed with the love of God, that our bodies would be captivated by doing your will. And Lord, I pray as we began that you would make this church and make us your people, little lampstands that shine for your glory. Because you live, these things are true. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.